return the book of Romans. That is my proposal for this evening and the coming weeks. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 11. We begin re-entry into this magnificent epistle. I have a vision in my mind of a shuttle-like object with tiles all aglow entering back into the atmosphere as we begin reading again tonight from Romans chapter 11. I'll read the first 16 verses of this chapter, and I put you on alert already. These are important to what we intend to do together tonight, but these are not the only verses. I intend in this re-entry to speak broadly to this section before we then go back in coming weeks to our more predictable and plotting approach. So we'll be moving around a bit tonight, but I read from verse 1 of chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, They have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time. There is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus to save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, 
so are the branches. This is the Word of God. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the question that Paul asks at the beginning of chapter 11 is the title to my sermon, but it is not, however, the real question I will seek to answer. Paul's question is, has God rejected his people? My question this evening is, who cares if he has? Who cares if he has? When Paul asks his question, he's speaking of his fellow Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham, and the question is of intense concern for him. And it has occupied large parts of the book of Romans. When I ask my question, I'm referring to the fact that few, if any of us, if we're honest, have spent a sleepless night over the plight of the Jews. Ancient or modern. My question is not, I trust you know, an attempt to be cruel. It's an attempt to be realistic. Here is what we find. We are entering back into Romans. In a section in Romans in which Paul's long-standing angst with regard to Israel, his brothers according to the flesh, is reaching its climax 9, 10, 11 of Romans is the climax of what has been running throughout the book since the beginning. And as complex a book as Romans is, it's difficult to enter in at any point. But the thing which I gather is most challenging to us as we enter back into the book of Romans just here is a problem of interest. The Apostle is clearly in tremendous, desperate desire for something that rarely even occurs to us, if we're honest. Has God rejected His people? Obviously, we should care about that question. But why should we care? Some of you, no doubt, have cared more than others. I acknowledge that. But why should we care? Who should care whether God has rejected His people? Is it just common Christian charity? We would not want that of any people? Well, there's more than that. And that's what we'll spend our time on this evening. Let me say that if there is anyone here this evening who is Jewish, Please don't be put off by my statement of a problem because I hope to address that problem. If there is among Christians a lack of concern or interest about the future of the Jews, it is not because our Bibles manifest that. If you're a Jew, perhaps here this evening, and have come to know and love Jesus the Nazareth as the Messiah, this passage is already one I trust has already become quite dear to you. We'll do two things tonight. First, by way of diagnosis, and then by way of treatment. First, we'll look at reasons we might not care. 
that God has rejected his people. And secondly, reasons we certainly should care about that question. There are several reasons that we might not care, and they're not all pointers to some moral defect in us, but to some confusion or something related to our experience. First of all, let me just point out that we may not know people who are Jewish or have the kind of concern that naturally arises when you're in relationship with someone. Now, that may have been true of many people throughout the ages, but it was surely not true of the writer of Romans. Paul, as you know well, was not only a Jew, but that was his whole world, Judaism. He knew those who were descendants of Abraham. He loved them. We remember this as we look back at chapter 9 when he speaks, beginning this section, this broad section we're returning to. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The Apostle Paul was very clearly not only knowledgeable of Judaism, but he was still very impressed with it. At least with that part of Judaism that, as he describes it, showed a zeal for God. Beginning of chapter 10, he says, I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God. But not according to knowledge. I have known those who have known with much greater familiarity those communities of Jews in our country that are zealous for God. They're devoted to the Torah, the law of God. And it is admirable to my friends to see the cohesion of that community, the devotion of that community to the same Scriptures, in part at least, that we love. The fact that that's not been part of our experience is no necessary fault of ours, but it explains something about why this question may not be as gripping to us as it was to Paul. A second reason we might not care is that we live a long time away from the crisis in Judaism that's reflected in the New Testament. Two thousand years have passed since that which Paul is standing, straddling, if you will, the passing of the Old Covenant into the New Covenant and the great upheaval, the crisis that that creates in Judaism. That's a long time. Seems like a faraway issue. It's not a crisis for us. It's been resolved long ago. But it's the crisis that many of those parts of the New Testament that we read are written out of, and certainly the book of Romans. Paul is seeking to set forth to a Jewish and Gentile congregation his gospel, the message he's been preaching. And it has a great deal to do with explaining how it is that the covenant people of God have not signed on, if you will, to this particular Messiah figure. And yet, so many Gentiles are and are claiming to be the recipient of the love of the God of Abraham. That's a long time ago. And as a matter of fact, because it's so remote to us, we don't even read our Bibles always with our eyes open to that particular issue, that crisis. 
the book of Romans has many memorable and memorizable passages. But sometimes these references to Jews and Gentiles get in the way. They don't seem to fit our memory cards. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, we appreciate that, but that last part, which was the punch of that verse, doesn't quite have that same effect to those of us far removed from that crisis. Or in chapter 3, when Paul injects into his discussion, then what advantage has the Jew? We just keep reading and get back to the good stuff about justification in chapter 3. Or chapter 4, where he asks the question, Right in the middle of some really good stuff, he says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? I am reminded, and I have reminded you in recent days, because my awareness of this has been heightened, how much we are the people who've inherited Judaism. We have a Jewish Bible written by Jews, almost entirely for Jews, very largely. We have a book that is full of things said by God to Jews. And we've put ourselves, rightfully so, as the recipients of those things in light of what Christ has done. But we have not consistently thought of ourselves As Gentiles, we don't even feel like Gentiles, do we? When we read the scriptures, we aren't often quick to see the part that we have in this great crisis that's now long ago. A third reason we might not care as much as we should about Paul's question in Romans 11 verse 1 is that we may have misunderstood certain implications of covenant theology. We are living in a day in which there is a need for an emphasis within the church on the unity of God's covenant. The unity of the church. We speak of an Old Testament church, a New Testament church. We speak of one covenant of grace. In the Old Testament, largely confined to the Jews. In the New Testament, that is open to all men, both Jew and Gentile. And we who hold to covenant theology are quite emphatic that that leaves no room for some separate plan of salvation for those who are Jews. And we're quite right. We quote passages like Galatians 3. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. The church is one. And that's the great glory of the new covenant, bringing Jew and Gentile into one covenant. Brothers and sisters, that language can be pressed to the point that we practically begin to think there's no such thing anymore as a Jew. No such category any longer for Israel. For the people who are physically descended, ethnically related to that man that God singled out from Ur of Chaldees, Abraham. When Paul speaks in the book of Romans, almost without exception of Israel, he's talking about those very flesh and blood 
people who are descended from Abraham. He's speaking, he speaks in Romans about his brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh. He speaks of Israel, the Jews, my fellow Jews. He calls himself an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. And Galatians 3 is, it, is one of our passages along with Ephesians. It speaks of the unity that's in the church, Jew and Gentile. It is not to be understood as obliterating this reality that there is a nation that God had dealings with exclusively at one time. There is still a nation called Israel, Jews. After all, Paul is speaking rhetorically, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. Of course there's male, female, slave, free, Jew, Greek, They remain those respective entities, and yet, in the Gospel, they can come to have equal standing. That's his point. One other observation I'll make, a reason we might not care, and that is that it's not easy for us to see how great a theological issue is at stake in this question Paul is raising. Has God rejected His people? Who cares if He has? None of us would say that, of course. We might betray a lack of care about that point, and we can only do so, ultimately, if we fail to see how much is at stake in terms of who God is. May I read to you what has been very helpful to me? One of the commentaries, I've come to judge it the best commentary the book of Romans, by a man named Tom Schreiner. Here he puts very well the questions that give rise to what Paul does in this section of Romans. Listen. If the Jews and Gentiles are both equally indicted in sin and have equal access to salvation through Christ, and if the blessings of the Old Testament people of God are in possession of the church. Righteousness, reconciliation, sonship, the gift of the Spirit, the ability to keep the law, the promise of future salvation. Then what does one make of the Old Testament promises made to Israel as Israel? Have the promises simply been transferred to the church? And is ethnic Israel left outside? If God's promises to Israel have not come to fruition, then how can one be sure the great promises made to the church in Romans 8 will be fulfilled? How could a righteous God transfer His promises from Israel to the church? Paul says that nothing will separate one from Christ's love and that those who are justified will be glorified. But God also chose Israel. And if His covenant promises to Israel were not realized, then how can one assert that they'll be fulfilled for the church? Schreiner goes on to say the fundamental issue in Romans 9, 10, and 11 then is not the place of Israel, though that is a crucial issue. The fundamental issue, the primary question, 
relates to the faithfulness and righteousness of God. Is the God who made these saving promises to Israel faithful to His pledges? Now, whether or not that's ever gripped you, I promise you, you will not come to see, as Paul does, the significance of what he's saying. If those questions are impressed upon you, those are the questions. I think it's a fair summary of what brings Paul to this place. Something about the question in Romans 11 verse 1 strikes at the very righteousness of God. And something about his answer to that question is going to give rise to one of the Scripture's most glorious doxologies at the end of chapter 11. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. That's how Romans 11 ends. So the question is taking up a matter of tremendous significance for the very righteousness of God and its vindication in the earth. If that's never occurred to you, I'll tell you who it has occurred to. It's occurred to an unbelieving yet still devout Jew who looks with great cynicism at your use of His Scriptures. Let's move, secondly, for the remainder of our time, to look at reasons we certainly should care. Those are contributing factors possibly to why Paul's question may seem remote to us. But even if I've not struck a mark in any of those, let me say that what Paul is about to say will make the question and its answer thrilling to you. Here, I'm going to try to give you a bird's eye view, and then in the coming weeks, we'll circle around and look more closely. And there are three reasons why we certainly should care. The first is this. Jews, as Jews, are still specially loved by God. That's the first reason we certainly should care. You will know by now, I trust, that when we speak of the love of God, we're actually speaking of something that is complex. It is multifaceted. Scripture reveals, for example, that God has a love for those who are in rebellion against Him. He is capable of that and has for much of the history of Israel, for example. And He has love for those even who die in their rebellion. Paul is under no illusion, you know this by now, that the Jews who've rejected Jesus can be saved in any other way. He is under no such illusion. He realizes they're under the curse of God. Chapter 9. That they've even been hardened by God Himself. Also the same chapter. And that they're in the desperate, most desperate need of salvation. Chapter 10. But, paradoxically, we might say, He also speaks of them as a nation who is still specially loved by God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11 again. I ask then, has God rejected His people? Well, what are you doing calling them His people? That's Old Testament, isn't it? Well, in a sense it is, but in a sense apparently it is not. And especially when He 
answers, by no means. He's affirming they are still in some sense His people and He has not rejected them. They're ones that verse 2 tells us He's foreknown. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. We've learned that that language is the language of love, foreknow. And Paul is talking about Israel as a nation here. That he loved this nation from long ago. And he foreknew this nation. That is to say, he placed his affections on this nation. And it's inconceivable to Paul that he would reject finally and ultimately the people whom he foreknew. Later in this same chapter, Paul will make these kinds of statements. Verse 28. As regards the gospel... They are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. I defer to a later time opening up that in greater detail. Verse 29. In some sense, the Jews still have on them the calling of God. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, you can imagine this kind of talk. In one sense, enemies of God, but in another sense, loved by God. This has given theologians great headaches, major migraines. And the language that they use to describe this, what, do you, what category do you put this kind of love? Is this covenant love? If it is, if it's old covenant, is it new covenant? It's not saving. Certainly not in this period of time where most of Israel is perishing in their sins. What is it? Whatever you call it. Whether you say with reverence, God still has a thing for Israel. He's not over that relationship. He still loves those children of Abraham in a special way, however you speak of it. Paul is going to lay that out for us. That's the first reason we certainly should care about the question Paul Answers. The second reason we certainly should care is that the glory of God is at stake, apparently, in the salvation of the Jews. You want to have a heart after God's own heart? Then you'll have a special love for the Jews. You want to have a heart for the glory of God? then you'll be concerned about what happens to the Jews. Let me try to give you, in a sweep, the flow of Paul's thought. I'm going to move from chapter 10 into chapter 11 and try to give you the, the flow of it so that I can show you that this is what's animating the Apostle. He is seeing that this issue of God... Rejecting or not rejecting. He is not rejecting. No, He never would reject finally and fully the Jews. That's a matter of His glory. Let me show you that in the flow of the passage in broad strokes. We left off when we were last in Romans with those words in chapter 10, verse 12. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved Call that for the moment a glorious reality, a New Testament reality that now salvation is available to all. 
But then as Paul continues, the rest of chapter 10, he reminds us. It's review. It's as if he can't stop talking about it. It's so distressing to him. He reminds us of this great tragedy. Verse 14 to verse 21 He's saying God has given Israel ample opportunity to hear this gospel. There's been people sent to them to preach to them, and yet they've played the part to a T of their fathers in the wilderness. They've hardened their hearts. This is a great tragedy. And Paul has made that point again in the past. Then we come to the verse of the hour, verse 1 of chapter 11, and that's the urgent question. The question Paul's been raising in various ways. And he pulls out his answer. You know it by now in the original. May genoita. May it never be. The old translation. God forbid that we would say God has rejected His people. Well, then what gives? Here are the facts. Israel is objectively apostate. The vast majority of them, and we can speak of Israel in terms of the vast majority, that's how Paul is speaking. The vast majority of Israel has turned away from the true Messiah. And yet at the same time, we hear Paul affirm God has not rejected His people. So what gives? Paul Paul goes on to give what I'll call a sufficient answer. And that's in the first ten verses of chapter 11. And there he reminds us, now with the illustration from Elijah, that God in preserving a remnant from within Israel is honoring his commitment to Abraham. The argument goes like this. You cannot accuse God of turning his back on Israel. Look who's talking. I'm an Israelite. I'm not going to make the same mistake that Elijah made. Elijah said, oh, woe is me. I'm all alone. And God has to say, shape up, Elijah. 7,000 I've preserved. You may see, Elijah, your nation in wholesale apostasy, but I've preserved a remnant because I love Abraham. And Paul reminds us of this. He says, look who's talking. Do you not know? I myself am an Israelite. And along with that, there are many, not relative to the whole, but there are many who have turned from Judaism to Christianity, if we may speak that way. I'm calling that a sufficient answer. And I want you to stop right now and reflect on the fact that Paul could have stopped there. The question is that the glory of God, His righteousness. God hasn't rejected His people. Look at the remnant. There are still Jews. They're knowing the saving blessings of Messiah. And Paul could stop there, couldn't he? He said enough to clear God of all accusation, wrongdoing or unfaithfulness. Look, Israel's been stubborn. God has elected some within Israel. God's ensured that there's a remnant. There's always been a remnant. There's a remnant to this day. It may be a small remnant. It may not be worth calling Israel just some elect within Israel. But God is faithful. You can see it in the remnant. Need He have said more to clear God as righteous? No. But that's not where Paul stops. And that much thus far doesn't explain why he loses himself at the end of the chapter in praise to God. 
What explains that? Well, what explains it is what follows those first ten verses. And that is Paul beginning to open up what I'll call a stunning prediction. It is God's plan that the salvation of the Gentiles will bring about the salvation of the Jews. We will look at that more closely, but for now, look at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? What's behind that is, in essence, is this it? Is that all? Israel stumbled. You stumble and you recover. You oftentimes don't fall even though you stumble. That's been the sense of the question. Has she stumbled so as to fall, never to rise again? That's the sense of it. Has that happened? May Genoita. Listen. Rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. You know what Paul's doing? He's saying, you, you might think the whole mission I'm engaged in to reach the Gentiles is just for the sake of the Gentiles. You know what? It's not. My great mission in reaching the Gentiles is not only for their well-being, it's for the well-being of the Jews. Because it's in the plan of God that when the Gentiles come in great fullness to enjoy the blessings of the New Covenant, that evidence of God's blessing and that proof of Messiah's coming will move Israel as Israel to jealousy. It's the language of love. An estranged lover may resort to showing attention to someone else in order to gain the attention and notice the renewed love of that one once in love with. So he goes on to say, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. He goes on to say, if it's been good for the world for Israel to fall because we've turned to the Gentiles with the gospel, it's going to be a lot better for the world. Far, far better. When Israel is restored, verse 15, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, dear people, Paul is speaking there of a future restoration. What he would say in the language of Romans 11, a future re-engrafting of Israel, the Jews, back into the new covenant community when the whole nation will finally recognize Christ as Messiah. And he's saying God is actually going to use the Gentiles' enjoyment of the gospel to bring that about. I'm calling that a stunning prediction. Now, I realize that you'll need some time to weigh all this and to look at the Scriptures We'll take the time. Let me just ask you for a minute. Doesn't that seem like something that would most 
glorify God. Doesn't that seem to be so? Oh, it's to His glory to be sure that He offered the Messiah to them once at the beginning, first. It's to His glory that when they rejected the Messiah, He offered the Messiah to us, Gentiles. And it's to His glory that He does continue to work within the nation of Israel to bring one here and another there and a family there that a remnant be preserved. That's to His glory. But wouldn't it be all the more to His glory after doing everything that is necessary to be faithful to His Word and show Himself to be righteous to add to that the full salvation of all those descendants of Abraham along with a multitude of Gentiles. Doesn't that seem like what would be most glorious to God? For Him to ensure that in the words of Paul, all Israel will be saved. Verse 26. That they'll be saved just like the prophets sure seem to be saying that they'll be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will become my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That, dear people, is what I submit to you gives rise to this hymn to use a weak word for it, this outburst of praise, Romans 11 concludes with, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. I thought it was going to happen this way. The Jews would have the Messiah sent to them. They would embrace Him. And only after they'd embraced the Messiah as the people to whom the Messiah came would then the blessings overflow to the Gentiles. That's how we thought it would happen. But God has ordained a way that that will happen, but not first. By their rejection, because God is glorified in judgment as well as salvation, by their rejection, the Gospel would go to the Gentiles and that the whole world would be full of the Gospel and that then and only then would the Gospel be embraced by those who are descended from His beloved friend, Abraham. This is a reason we certainly should care. The Gospel, or rather the glory of God, is at stake, apparently. And one last that has been implicit, and we'll develop it more later, and that is this. From what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 11, you and I should care about this question whether God has rejected this people because the future of the world is tied up with the faith of the Jews. It's very clear that what Paul is talking about in Romans 11 is something that will be observable. This reality of all Israel being saved, of them being restored, it's going to be something that 
is a historical phenomenon that we can see. And it is also clear that it's a prerequisite to the coming of that final day when the door of salvation is closed. It can't be saved after that day. It'll have to be before that day. And so that day, that final day, when the judgment of all things takes place, the door of salvation is closed, that day will not come until this work of God is done among the people of Israel. Now, of your people, that has been, as I understand it, the majority of the church's understanding through the years. I acknowledge, I admit, there is disagreement as to the relationship of our Lord Jesus' second coming and those details. Paul doesn't get into that just now, and so I will not just now. But leaving that point aside, my point is this for now. The fact that God has not rejected His people is important because we're waiting on their acceptance. We are waiting on their acceptance in order to fully and finally enter in to the new heavens and the new earth. That explains a couple things. Interestingly of all, about Presbyterian history. A couple things. It explains why, for example, in the 19th century, the Church of Scotland was moved by the men like Robert Murray McShane and the Bonar brothers to send some of them to Israel with a view to establishing a new, renewed mission to the Jews. don't know if you knew that about Presbyterian history. They recognize that the future of the world is tied up in this matter of Israel's faith and unbelief. It also explains why the Directory for Public Worship of our church, the Westminster Directory for Public Worship, encourages the pastor in his pastoral prayer to do what I have not done. To pray for the propagation of the Gospel and Kingdom of Christ to all nations for the conversion of the Jews, the fullness of the Gentiles, the fall of Antichrist, and the hastening of the second coming of our Lord. I'm aware that we have ventured into new waters tonight. They're new to me. Some of what the Apostle will teach us may require even some revising of what has been said from this pulpit. For example, I'm not entirely certain that in the last 12 years I have not preached, for example, the covenant and emphasize the oneness of the covenant community without drawing, at least implicitly, some inferences as if there is no longer any future for the people of Israel. I have been set straight. I'm repentant. I conclude by pointing your eye back to something you may not have fully weighed in verse 1 of chapter 10. In light of what Paul goes on to tell us, look again at what he says in chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire 
and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. If Paul had stopped there, I think we might rightly assume that it's one of those prayers. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. This is what I want, but I submit it to you. It appears from what Paul goes on to say, that's not the kind of prayer it is. Paul goes on to say, I have a mystery to tell you. I've just summarized it for you. The conversion of the Gentiles is a means of bringing about the salvation of Israel. And so going back, we see Paul is praying for something alike, not unlike praying for the return of Christ. These are things God has revealed to him will happen. He just wants it to happen soon. And so he prays for it and seeks to promote it as a missionary. And so for us as well. Let's pray together.